listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit www.jointheventure.com. So last week we started this series, In the Shadows, and we're talking about this absolutely true story that happened in the time during the Old Testament of the Bible uh, about a girl named Esther. And I just wanted to kind of give you a recap in case you're uh, here for the first time this week or maybe you missed last week. Uh, You can also go check out part one on our podcast. It's at our website, jointheventure.com, and click on Messages, and all of our messages are always up there too. Uh, They're also on iTunes. Um, But... It is my opinion that the story of Esther would be a great movie. I mentioned that earlier, and I think it would just really play out the, the strengths and weaknesses of good movies are all there for the story of Esther. And uh, in, in case you missed last week, what I want to do right now is kind of a little uh, previously on In the Shadows. You see that on TV? So that's what this is, previously on In the Shadows. Let me just catch you up. First of all, uh, we're taking the story out of uh, the time in Jewish history where the Jews had found themselves in exile. So if you look at the entire Bible as a whole, the first two-thirds of it are the Old Testament. Okay, and that Old Testament section is just a section about how God uses the Jewish nation, the Israelites, to show himself to the world. That's the whole first two-thirds of the Bible. And there's a point near the end of the Old Testament where the Jewish nation is originally taken over by the Assyrians. The Assyrians get beat out by the Babylonians, and now the Persians are in charge. It's just the way that it happened back in the day. And so the Jewish nation is literally living away from their homeland in exile among the Persians. We started out the story, or a movie last week, and, and it began with this party, 187-day-long party. That is over six months of partying, and there is very, very liberal use of alcohol, and it's just a rough situation for the characters involved. And we have the first character who we've cast, if you remember last week, it was cast, the, the character of King Xerxes being played by Samuel L. Jackson. So we've got Samuel L. Jackson here. I went, for the, uh, I went for the Avenger look with him this time, and so this is Samuel L. Jackson. He's playing uh, the role of King Jer- Jer- Jerxes. I named him King Jerxes last week because he's kind of a jerk, okay? So King Xerxes or King Jerxes. Um, King Jerxes is having this 187-day long, long party, and he calls his wife, Queen Vashti, to come into his room with his buddies to do like a lewd dance for them, and she wasn't having it. And, uh, and, and just so you can get a picture for who maybe I think Queen Vashti might look like, we have cast her, the role is Natalie Portman is playing uh, Queen Vashti, and so she's, she's rocking the Queen Vashti role pretty hard, and so Xerxes says, get in here, and Vashti says, hit the road. I'm not doing that for you, man. That's just, that is not appropriate. I'm not going to go in and, and show off for your buddies. And he's like, you want me to hit the road? No, you hit the road. So he divorces her, he kicks her out of his palace, and exiles her from the country. And that's pretty intense. Like, guys, can you imagine getting a little argument, a little spat with your wife, and the next thing you know, you're like, you're exiled, exiled from the house, from the neighborhood, be gone. But that's what happens with Queen Vashti. And so we got Samuel L. Jackson getting an argument with Queen Vashti, and then he finds himself a little bit lonely. He's a little bit lonely. It's interesting, I didn't mention this last week, but as the king, he had a harem of women. And so it wasn't the physical needs of of marriage that he was looking for. It was the companionship. He wanted someone more than just uh, a concubine. And so he's talking to his royal advisors, and they suggest, and in all brilliance, because the way to depict a quality woman is obviously by having a beauty pageant, right? That's what, that's what he decides, at least. And so he goes, we're going to have this beauty pageant throughout the whole land, and anyone can enter this beauty pageant. And whoever's the most fairest in the land, I'll take them to be my wife. Enter in our next two characters. First, we find this guy named Mordecai. He's being played by the awesome Tommy Lee Jones. Now, I think Tommy Lee Jones is probably going to win an Academy Award for his role in, in The Shadows. In The Shadows. Pretty sure he's doing a great job. Um, and uh, 
he's a great guy because he's taken under his wing as his ward, uh, basically as his daughter, his cousin named Esther. Her parents have died, and uh, he's, I guess, the nearest of kin, and so he takes her in, and he's raising her like his own. And we have Esther, who is our leading lady, and we've got her played by the lovely Anne Hathaway, and she's doing a great job as well. And so Tommy Lee Jones enters Anne Hathaway into this beauty contest to see who could be the next queen of the Persian Empire. Pretty big deal. Where we left off last week, the cliffhanger was this. Esther wins. She wins the whole deal, and she becomes the queen. We're going to go into today looking at what happens in that relationship uh, with the king. But as we move forward, every great movie needs one awesome part, and it is the villain. Can you agree with that? Like, without a great villain, the movie's just kind of like, oh, cool, it's normal people doing normal stuff. Sweet, I don't want to watch that. But when you've got a villain, and you've got like the arch nemesis of the, the main, you know, they're foiling each other and all kinds of other artistic terms. They're doing that. The villain is an important role. And so as we began to think about the villain in the story, and there is one, his name is Haman. Haman is not a nice man. He is nasty. It's just his name sounds nasty. Haman. Yeah, he's just, yeah, I don't like him. I don't like the way he portrays himself in the story. I don't like the way his story plays out. He's just a dirty, dirty character. And we were racking our brains trying to figure out who the best actor would be to play Haman. And so there's some really good villains out there. And you might have a list of your own. But there's one villain that stands out above and beyond the rest for me personally. Because it comes from one of my favorite movies. And we had to actually cross out of the realm of reality into the realm of animation. Like a Disney movie. In fact, to play the role of Haman, we had to call his agents, but he agreed to do it. We've got my man, Jafar. You remember this guy? Like, this is Haman, okay? Look at that guy. He's nasty. He'll do anything. The diamond in the rough. If you haven't seen Aladdin, you probably should move away from America. I'm just saying, it's a really good movie. Um, but this is, a, this is Jafar, and he's going to play the role of Haman. It's, I'm, I actually want you to stay here in America. It's a good place. Stay here. Don't leave, but get the movie. It's a good movie. It's, it's always easier to understand the villain when you understand his backstory, right? Uh, in fact, one of my son's favorite shows, probably because it's one of my favorite shows and I brainwashed him to watch it, is the show Phineas and Ferb. You ever watch that show? Dr. Doofensmirtz is the ultimate villain, and every time he starts talking about his... Uh, his, his big scheme for the day, he goes into the backstory of why he got to this place. It all began in Dimmelschmerz or wherever he lived. Um, to understand the backstory of a villain really gives us a picture of who he is. And so I want to do is take a, section, a second and look at some more of the story of Esther from the book of Esther and see what we can learn about this guy, Haman. What got him to where he is? Why is he this bad guy? And what bad thing does he do? Like, why am I calling him the bad guy? The first thing that we need to know about Haman, in fact, it's also very true about Jafar, is his position in the kingdom. And so let's just check it out. Chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is what we find out about, king, uh, about Haman. It says, After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him the seat of honor higher than any of those of all the other nobles. So King Samuel L. Jackson appoints Haman, Jafar, to the second most prominent and powerful position in the entire empire. That's huge. Remembering that the Persian Empire at this time stretches all the way from India to North Africa. This is a massive empire, the one that just ultimately sets up the great empires of history. These are the Persians. 
He had a very high position, and as such, it puts him uh, in a position to make some very important decisions. That's the first thing we learn about him is his position. The second thing we learn about him, actually in verse 2, we learn about his character. We learn a lot about his character. What we learn is that he's a complete egomaniac. Um, Once Haman was appointed number two man, everybody in the kingdom had to bow down to him, kneel to him when they came into his presence. And so we learn in verse 2, this is where it comes from, all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded concerning him, commanded this concerning him, which I'm sure he thoroughly enjoyed being worshipped and adored and, and at least bowed down to. But check this out. But Mordecai, remember Tommy Lee Jones? Mordecai would not kneel down or pay honor to him. What happens here is important. Everyone is supposed to bow down to Haman, but Tommy Lee Jones will not do it. Mordecai says, I'm not going to do it, which is not surprising. Mordecai is a Jew. One of the number one rules for the Jews was, you should have no other gods before me. That's like the number one rule for a Jew. And so many Jews took it very, very literally. And they say, I will not bow down before a king or any other man. I only bow down before God. And there's other stories in the Bible of people who refused to bow down before kings and they were punished for it. And this is what happens with Mordecai. He won't do it. Especially not to some egomaniac government official. And so when Haman came down the road, everyone would hit the pavement, but not Mordecai. He's not going to do it. He's not going to bow down. And so we know about Haman's position. We know about his character. There's one more thing that you need to know about Haman. Honestly, this is the number one thing that you can know about him. Haman was a racist. He was an unapologetic racist. And there was actually a clue to why he was a racist uh, back there in, in, in chapter 3, verse 1. We read it just now. We won't read it again. But there's some serious history to back this up that I want to tell you about. Now, if you're someone who, like, details either overwhelm you or confuse you or bore you, like, if you, if you don't want this extra details, just take a time out for, like, 30 seconds, 45 seconds. I want to give some detail. For those of you who like the detail, why he's such a racist, tune in because this is pretty interesting. There's some history behind it. Haman, it says in chapter 3, verse 1, was an Agagite. Now, you probably don't have any Agagite friends, I'm guessing, okay? We don't know much about the Agagites, but historians tell us and agree that the Agagites were probably descendants of a guy named King Agag. That makes sense, Agag. He had a bunch of children, they became the Agagites. That's how, that's how naming nations normally works. We don't know much about him, but this, this is what we know about King Agag. We know that he was an Amalekite, okay? You got all those names? The Agagites, King Agag, the Amalekites. Remember, some of you are tuned out. It's okay. Some of you who are tuned in, it's good for you. Here's what we know about the Amalekites. If you look through the Bible, they are the arch nemesis of the Jewish nation. They're one of them. There's several nations who are constantly at battle with the Jewish nation. nation. And so they're, the Amalekites, are, they're, they're always at war, and they're fighting, and they're putting the cities under siege, and it's just a bad situation. And so there is this mutual hostility between, between the Jews and the Amalekites. And it lives on and on and on. Do, are we not aware of that in America today, right? Just racism. It's like, why, why do you think you're better than someone else? I don't know. I guess my grandma told me that, right? And that's exactly where racism comes from. Now, I am not at all going to condone racism. I think it's the, one of the most vile and heinous sins of our world. Um, but understanding this makes sense when you move forward with the story. So it's not right that Haman was a racist, but it completely moves to the next part of the story. This is what happens, okay? Because remember, Mordecai's not bowing down to Haman when he comes in. Chapter 3, verse 5 says, When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. 
Yet having learned who's Morde- who Mordecai's people were, who were Mordecai's people? They were Jews. All right? Having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. He had the power to kill Mordecai, but he was like, man, that's not good enough. I'm not just going to kill Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the entire kingdom of Xerxes. This is the moments that the Agagites have been waiting for. We've got someone in power. We've got these people we despise, and he has crossed me, and I'm going to take them out. Now, in, in our very accepting society, it would be so far out of our reach to think I would, com- I would commit genocide because someone did me wrong. But for this egomaniac person in high position who's a racist, it makes complete sense. So it frustrated Haman so bad that somebody wouldn't bow down to him, but he decides he's going to have not only Mordecai killed, but have his entire people killed. So he devises this plan. He goes to the king with a proposal to have all the Jews killed. It's crazy. Verse 9 says this. This is, this is him talking to King Jerxes. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So that's his decree. Now, this is interesting because it goes to King Xerxes with a plan. I want to destroy all the people, but I'm going to put 10,000 uh, pieces of silver in the treasury for this, to take care of it, to pay the soldiers who do this thing. Now, 10,000 gold coins, it sounds like a lot to us probably. Like 10,000 of anything is a lot. But I want you to understand just how much this was. There's a, a historian, he's a Greek historian named Herodotus, and Herodotus writes about the Persians. And he says this about the Persian Empire. He says that the entire annual budget for the Persians at this time was about 14,500 talents. 14,500. Haman is promising 10,000. That's almost two-thirds of the annual budget to take care of this genocide. Are you seeing how much he is enraged by this moment where Mordecai doesn't bow down? And before you go, okay, hold on, that's, that's two-thirds of the national budget, and I get it, like, he's angry. But where in the world is he going to get 10,000 pieces of silver? Well, he's got a plan. And then he pl- talks about the plan to the king. He says, listen, here's the deal. We're going to create a day. We're going to create a holiday, and, and, and it's just basically going to be National Kill a Jew Day. We're going to go out, and we're going to kill all the Jews, and we're going to take everything they own. We're going to take their property, we're going to take, uh, we're going to take their possessions, we're going to take their money, and we're going to liquidate it all, and we're going to put it all into the treasury. And he says to the king, I'm sure that after we do that, we'll have at least 10,000. This guy's got a plan. His rage, his hatred, his egotism is leading him to a place that is very, very bad. But Haman persuades the king. The king's like, eh, sounds good to me. Okay, cool. Cool, we'll do that. Put the money in the treasury. Seems like a good economic decision. And uh, we'll be done with all these people who apparently are obeying us. Now, here's the thing. King Jerxes and, 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 and Jafar, they're not even phased by the heinousness of what's about to happen. Look at verse 15 of chapter 3. It says, spurred on by the king's commands, the couriers went out, and the edict was issued to the citadel of Susa. And King Haman sat down, the king and Haman sat down to drink. The city of Susa was bewildered. The king and Haman did their thing, the thing they did best. They just sat down and they partied. They just relaxed, like, cool, done. Meanwhile, the Jewish nation is in a frenzy. 
this edict goes out, it gets posted everywhere that on this day, anyone who knows a Jew can kill them. Can you imagine if that happened in our world today? Oh, man, it'd be all over Facebook. <laughs> we wouldn't know how to react. There would be, like, groups and activism and picketing and all kinds of stuff. There would be fighting. But this is an edict from the emperor. There is no reversing this. Here's where I imagine the Jewish people found themselves. Standing in the face of this edict, knowing that the day is on the horizon and going, um, God? Hello? I thought you said we were your people. So can you explain the killing and the edict and stuff? Because they thought he'd abandoned them. I want to speak to you right now because I feel like this is so true so often. We just feel like maybe God's abandoned us. And we ask him for specific things, and he doesn't show up. And we're like, well, look, I asked, and you, you apparently either aren't real or don't care. And I got to tell you, man, I, I get it. I get it. I totally understand. Because we live in a world of instant gratification. We, in, we live in a world of comfort and success. And so when those things don't add up, we're like, hello, God, um, I'm right here. I thought you said you were going to take care of me. But you might remember last week that I said that God doesn't work in our time. He doesn't work in the way that we understand. Many times what God is doing is working behind the scenes and in the shadows, orchestrating and putting things together for our own good. Sometimes that means that, quite frankly, it's going to suck. Life is just going to move the way that it moves. Why? Because people make decisions and bad things happen. And that's actually a sign that God loves us. God says, part of the way that I show you that I love you is I let you do what you want to do. I didn't program you like robots. I didn't put you into some perfect society, some utopian world where no one can make decisions. No, you all have the free will to make decisions. Unfortunately, your decisions and other people's decisions impact the world. But I haven't left you. And I haven't abandoned you. Right here, this is kind of where a scene of the movie that we're making kind of ends, right? The music plays, it's some Celine Dion song, I guess. And the lights fade to black because it's this point of hopelessness. Every good movie's got that point, right? But this is real life for these people. Okay, new scene, all right? New scene. New scene in the book of Esther. The next scene opens with a major pl plot twist. First, we see Tommy Lee Jones, Mordecai, and he is... Tearing his clothes off. Try not to picture that. <laughs> okay? But he's doing it. Read it. It's right here in the Bible. Okay, this is in chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai, Tommy Lee Jones, learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, and he put on sackcloth, which is kind of like burlap, just this really uncomfortable fabric, and he put on ashes, and he went out into the city, and he wailed loudly and bitterly. This is a customary sign of mourning. This is the way people reacted. If someone died, if something bad happened, it would be called putting on sackcloth and ashes. It's just what they would do. They would tear up their perfectly good clothes. They would go to the fireplace and get the soot and ashes and rub it all over their face because they wanted everyone to know, I'm having a bad day. <laughs> we do the same thing. We do different things, though. We, we, we might go for a 10-mile run or go hit some golf balls at the, the range or maybe lose ourselves in a Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan movie with, like, a gallon of ice cream. Like, Whatever you do, like, that's how you deal with, with your distress. 
Uh, you might think that the sackcloth and ashes is weird. They probably would think chocolate ice cream was weird. They're like, chocolate, that seems like a reward. Like, what are you doing? But here's the major plot twist. Esther's cousin Mordecai hears about the plot to exterminate the Jews long before Esther does. But here, remember this. This is the plot twist. Do you remember who is the queen right now? Who? Esther. And what is her nationality? She's Jewish. Uh-oh, King Xerxes. Do you remember last week I talked about one thing that Esther did that probably wasn't the best thing? She hid her identity. She hid her true nationality. She never told King Xerxes that she was a Jew. And now this edict has been issued, and here we've got Esther, the queen, who realizes, uh-oh, I'm a Jew. And her cousin Mordecai is distraught by this, but he's got a plan. What's interesting is he covers himself in sackcloth and ashes, not just because he's in mourning because of the edict, but he's got a plan. See, since Esther had become the queen, and since King Xerxes was a very powerful man and was very, very scared that he might get assassinated, he had extremely strict guard at the palace. Even though Mordecai was Esther's cousin, he wasn't allowed to go visit her anytime he wanted to. He couldn't even get her attention. He had no way of communicating her. She was completely shut off. So what he does is he wears this sackcloth and ashes. He goes and sits by the palace gate, and he's like, And that would get my attention. And so the people were like, Sir, please stop doing that. He's like, I need to see Esther of her cousin. And she's like, okay, okay, just stop. It's at the palace. People are here on vacation. Stop. Just bring me Esther. I want to see Esther. He's like, okay, okay. So Esther comes down. And when he does, he says, Esther, I need you to do something for our people. I need you to go speak to your husband. I need you to go talk to the king because what he's doing is very bad. And you know you could have some influence on him. You could go in there and you could say, no, King Xerxes, don't. Don't do this. Call it off. And the next scene we imagine is Anne Hathaway busting through the palace doors going, King Xerxes, you shall not do this. Nah, she she can't do that. Do you remember why she is the queen in the first place? Because the last queen disobeyed the king. You don't just go busting into King Jerksy's office and tell him off. That's not how it works. He does what he wants. So Mordecai says, Esther, you need, you need to go talk to your husband. She goes, uh-uh. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. That's not, that's not good. It says in verse 12, 4, verse uh, 12 through 14, chapter 4, verse 12 through 14, this is uh, after she gives her reply. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. He's not going to take no for an answer. He says, do not think that because you are in the king's house that you alone of all Jews will escape. He's got a good point. You're still a Jew, and it's still a law. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews, it's going to come from someplace else. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? But that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai's message to Esther is kind of one of those inspirational parts in the movie. You remember the Rocky movie? Like this Rocky and, the, and then the, the, old, the old dude that's his coach and he's like, come on Rock, get up and fight you monkey. He's like, but Mick, it's over. He's like, get off the mat you big baboon. This is this moment where Esther's like, oh, it's over. And Mordecai says, no. Get off the mat. 
You have got to stand up for your people right now. Mordecai doesn't say, Esther, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. God's going to take care of us. It's going to be fine. He says, look, God's going to spare some Jews. And what he's talking about is this. The Jews had this faith that there was going to be a Messiah one day. That Messiah turns out to be Jesus. That's who Christians live for today. But Mordecai's like, look, I've got the faith that God's going to come through some way. There might be a few Jews left or something. But what I'm telling you is you've got a chance to save the whole nation. So why don't you do that? But Esther, if you don't speak up, lots of people are going to be killed. Your actions will make a tremendous difference. You get to impact lives here, influence events, change history. You get to have a Bible book named after you. Come on. Do this thing, Esther. We need to understand this. This is you and I, okay? Our lives matter. And the decisions that you make matter. And the influence you have on the people you live with and work with and live next to and interact with and see at the grocery store and pump gas next to, your interactions with them matter. It's Memorial Day weekend, and I think, I think all the crazy juice got drank this weekend. I was down there, and uh, man, I was talking to a guy about like this, this one situation that where he had gotten, you know, the guy was like all up on his bumper and trying to cut him off and flipping him off and cussing him out the window, and the guy was like, it was, it was Ben who just got married. Ben was like, I'm like seriously driving safely. I'm not in this guy's way. He's flipping out. A few minutes later, the same thing happened again to another guy, to another guy. Like people just going crazy in traffic. Same thing. Aaron and I were down there for the wedding, and we were coming back from the rehearsal, and this guy pulled out in front of us, and he cut us off, and Aaron just an in instinct beeped his horn like, oh, hey, you're almost, we're almost all dead, but now we're not. It's good. We pass him. And the guy goes, and he goes back and gives us a finger, and he's like, ah, we're like, what's the deal? What's the deal? Here's the deal. That's the only thing I know about that guy. I don't know his name. I don't know his mama. I don't know where he went to school. He might be an awesome guy. But that's all I know about him, and that impacted my day. Do you realize the impact you have on people? Don't be a jerk for no reason. I could say other words, but you know what I'm talking about. Don't do that. There's no reason. And beyond that, you could make a positive influence. Just a simple like, there's kids in my neighborhood, they play ball all the time. And I love to go out there and just throw the ball. And I found out a couple of them don't have dads that live in their house. And, and through the couple years that we've lived there, man, I got this one guy, man, he comes to me when he gets out of school and he's like, Mr. Chris, Mr. Chris. And he shows me his report card. All I do is throw a football with the guy. But I'm impacting his life. Never underestimate the impact that you have. Even if you're having a bad day, even if your whole nation, there's been an edict made, and they're all going to be put to death, never underestimate the small things that you do that can make a big impact in the world. And there's this quote from Esther chapter 4, and it's probably like the pivotal moment in the whole book of Esther. He says, and who knows, but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Guys, you are in such a time as this right now. Things are all lining up, and it's crazy because the Jewish nation is like, ah, the sky is falling. God, have you abandoned us? And God's like, no, I haven't abandoned you months ago. In fact, it was years ago almost. I put into play this thing, this beauty pageant, and this girl who was an orphan and her cousin, she became the queen. I knew this was going to happen. And it was for such a time as this that I put Esther in her place. Guys, I know you might be in the pits right now. You might be in a place where you're like, I just don't even know what next step to take. And I want to tell you, 
God has prepared people and places and circumstances to get you out of that. You still have the free will to look at it and spit in its eye. Esther could do that. Esther said, I'm looking out for number one. But God has not abandoned you. Perhaps it's for such a time as this that you have been raised into the royal position that you're in. Keep your eyes open for that. That's God working in the shadows. So he says, listen, I want you to go and I want you to talk to the team, to the king. And that's just what Esther does. She grabs the opportunity. The crowd starts chanting, Esther, Esther, Esther. She's like, yo, Mordecai. Rocky reference, three of you got it. Let's check this out. Now, keep this in mind. She's terrified. And she, doesn't, she didn't aspire to this. She didn't ask for this. She just was following the steps as they came in front of her. But now she's got this moment where she's like, okay, I got to go talk to the king. What she wants is peace. She wants a happy home. She wants to live. She didn't want any of this. Let's read what it says in verse 15 of chapter 4. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. He says, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. A fast is when you give up something that you normally do for the sake of preparing for something else. And a spiritual fast might be like, I'm not going to eat, and every time instead of eating, I'm going to pray. Or I'm not going to, uh, you know, a lot of people fast from certain things, from chocolate or from coffee or from going to a certain place or from being with certain people or from doing a certain thing for a period of time to build you up for a specific purpose. And so he says, she says, go and gather everyone and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days. I and my maids will fast as you do. And when this, when this is done, I will go to the king, even though this is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away, and he carried out all of Esther's instructions. Esther finds the courage to risk her life for the right thing. Someone has said that courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is taking action in spite of your fear. Let me say that again. Courage is not the absence of fear. You can be terrified, yet still have courage because courage is taking a- action in spite of your fear. I- I'm just going to do it. It's the right thing to do. I'm terrified, but it's the right thing to do. And that's exactly what Esther did. The first action Esther took was to ask as many people as she could to pray and fast. And, and you know, I wonder if this is the first thing you do when you face intense pressure. Uh, probably not. It's not always the first thing I do, Definitely. And you face this thing, and you're like, how do I beat this thing? And you're just like, I'm going to fight it. I'm going to fight it. I'm going to fight it. I'm going to put the gloves on, and I'm going to fight it. And and I think Esther sets a pretty good example here. She says, "Um, let's take this to God. Let's lay it before him and say, God, this is the situation. This is my desire for the situation. I don't know what your desire is, but this is my desire. Can you please show me what your desire is? Get some friends along. I've got a bunch of buddies, um, and for for years, probably, uh, man, no less than 15 years, these guys uh, have been people that I could call and ask to pray for me. Even as a teenager, these are kids I met at a summer camp I went to. And I was like, listen, we're buddies. Let's hang out. And we ended up going through college together. And then we ended up, like, we're all married with kids now. And I know because I've done it, I can call them. No matter what's going on, no matter what temptation I'm facing, no matter what problems I'm facing, I'm calling them like, listen, I, I don't have the strength right now to pray and have the faith that I need to have. But I, I need you to do that for me. Can you do that for me? It's a big deal. So maybe that's something that you could do. Find some people right here at church and say, listen, I, just one person maybe, or two, or if you're in a small group. Can I call you if I need something? So that's what she does. It's, it's something that Jesus' friend Peter teaches in 1 Peter 5, 7. He says, cast all of your anxiety on God 
All of it. All of your fear. All of your trepidation. All of your anxiety. Place it on God. Why? Because he cares. It's a very short passage. It says a lot. So that's the first thing that she does. The second thing Esther does is um, she puts other people before herself. Philippians chapter 2 is in the Bible, and it tells us that Jesus had this attitude of humility. And he said that we should have that same attitude too. What does he do? He puts our needs before his needs. And he came down and he gave his life as a sacrifice for us so that we could be in connection with God. And that's the example that Jesus sets, but this is what Esther does too. She says, I need everybody to pray, and then I'm terrified, but I'm going to go. I'm going to put everybody else's needs before myself. And I love this line. She says, if I perish, I perish. And maybe that's an attitude we need to take on. I mean, yeah, if I perish, I perish. Maybe that's an attitude. But maybe there's some other things. Like, if people laugh at me, people laugh at me. If people think I'm stupid, people think I'm stupid. Whatever. If people say, hey, I missed you at the party, people miss me at the party. Because the point is not what they think. (laughs) The point is, am I trying to figure out what God wants for my life? And am I going to do whatever it takes to get there? She says, if I perish, I perish. Being a Christian is all about putting God and others before ourselves. Do you care more about God than your own life? It's a heavy question. Think about it. Maybe this is your first time in church ever or first time for a long time. Don't worry. It takes time. I just encourage you to keep coming back. Do you love other people more than you love your own life? Sometimes that's easier to do really heavy, but it's worth examining. And as you give your life to Christ and become a Christian, some of you have done that. Some of you are just thinking about it. This will be put to the test. And it's not going to be hard. It's not going to be easy, but it will be worth it. Esther's third option was this. She developed a strategy. She developed a strategy. She said, well, I happen to know that the king has this loophole to being a jerk. Because if I come into his presence, he's got this golden scepter. And if I come into his presence and he's willing to talk to me, he might lift his scepter and let me in. And then if he does, I can ask him anything I want to. It's like a free pass to talk to the king. She also knew this. She says, I haven't even seen the king in 30 days. Maybe he'll miss me. So she gets all dolled up. She goes to the front of the palace, or to the front of the room, and he stands there. And there's this moment where he says, where she says, well, what's going to happen? You know, I'm laying my life on the line. I don't think you understand the gravity of what she's facing because we can't even comprehend that in the culture we live in. But here's what you need to know. If for a second he was annoyed by her, he could have simply said, off with her head. And the entire Jewish nation would have lost their lifeline for getting everybody out. Remember, God would still have his plan for the Messiah, and everything would have been fine for that. But a lot of innocent people would have died. So Esther's standing in fear and trembling. And I love what it says in verse 2 of that next chapter. It says that Xerxes was pleased with her. He raises his scepter. The literal translation of that is, Hey, girl, you want to come into my throne room? That's the literal translation. And Esther was relieved. And she was so glad, and so she walks in. And that was the first obstacle that she faced. Um, 
There's a lot more to this story. And to hear it, you'll have to come back next week to be continued. But please do, because the conclusion of her story is seriously good. Man, to see how God works in the shadows. Before we go, I've got two very quick things that I want you to take home with you. I, I did the three things Esther did, you know, have a strategy, gather friends to pray for you, and, and those things. But um, I, I want to talk about two quick things that you can definitely take home with you. And so if you want to write these down or just think about them, this is what they are. The first one is this. When you're pressured and life gets really complicated and crazy, don't think that that means God has abandoned you. I just want to encourage you with that. Know that God is always working. And the interesting thing is this, that sometimes when we're in the center of God's will, sometimes that can be the hardest time of life. Let me ask you this. When Jesus was in the center of God's will and he was about to give his life on the cross, do you think that there was a moment where he thought God had abandoned him? Yes, he said it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Jesus, God in the flesh. Sometimes in the center of God's will, we don't understand why we're going through what we're going through. But then look at Jesus as an example. In Hebrews, it says, the book of Hebrews, it says, it was the joy that was set before him that gave him the strength to go through that. Because he knew what was on the other side. He knew that even though it was going to be completely painful and terrible in the moment, if he could get through it, oh, there was so much joy. Oh, there was so much peace. I want to give you some encouragement in that, guys. If you're going through something right now or knowing that you probably will in the next few weeks, sometimes seeking God puts you in the position where, yeah, if they laugh, they'll laugh. If they scorn me, they'll scorn me. But it would be totally worth it getting on the other side and going, yes, I am in God's will and he has set me up for success. The second application is this. The key to handling those pressure situations and stressful times and challenging trials and stuff is this. Knowing who you are. This is the biggest thing I want you to take home with you today. Because Esther could have said, you know what? I am the queen of Persia. I just happen to be a Jew. Instead, you know what she said? I am a Jew, one of God's people. And I just happen to be the queen. You see the difference? You might feel like, oh, I'm at work and it's terrible and I can't stand my job and I can't stand my boss and I can't stand my coworkers and it's terrible. And I have a job and I just happen to be a Christian. So like about an hour and a half every week I have a good time with my Christian friends at church. What if you said, I'm a God chaser. I'm grace shaped. I'm a love agent. I just happen to work at this really crappy job. <laughs> I think I'll shine a light. You see the difference there? I'm going through a terrible thing in this marriage, and it's going to be bad, it's bad, it's bad. It's like, you know what? I'm in this marriage. I just happen to be a Christian. Or you could say, you know what? I'm serving God with my life. I just happen to be in a bad situation with my marriage right now. I'm going to lean on him for strength. You could apply that to whatever you're going through right now. I realize that there are some of you in the room right now who are like, ah, I didn't say I was a Christian. You kind of put me in the boat with everybody else. I get it. It's cool. But what I want to tell you is that it, there is good company in this room. People who are going through hard times but are getting through it because of God's help. So stick with it. Hang around with us, and maybe you'll decide yourself to make that decision for your life. That's, that's the last big thing of today. Um, ask yourself, who am I? Who am I? Am I someone who's going through a big problem, or am I a God chaser first? That will really put in perspective the things that we're dealing with. So your life is not an accident. The Bible says that God plans our lives before we're even born. And God wants to do amazing things with you. Every interaction that you have with someone can have a significant impact on their life, for good or for bad. You are not an accident. 
You are an on purpose. God loves you, and he's got a plan for your life. And whether or not your life or my life fulfills its purpose depends on whether or not we're going to lean on God for the strength. We're going to come back next week. We're going to pick up Esther's story. We're going to see how she comes through in the very end and ultimately how God is working in the shadows. Let me have a prayer for you. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this story and, and really what it's meant to history. Um, I guess, you know, it's no secret that ultimately Esther does save the Jewish nation. And because of that, history's different. And um, I just thank you for her willingness to trust you. Lord, sometimes it feels like you're absent in our lives and... I just want to address that with you, God. Um, if you could show yourself to someone in this room who just needs to see a little hope. Lord, may it be through something that's said this morning, something that's done this morning, or through this week, God. I know you've got them exactly where you want them, but Lord, I pray in faith that you'll just help them see your love in their life. God, we love you. We thank you for Esther, her example, and the story that's told. And we thank you for our church and the family we're building here. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.